This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. The bedrock of a society built on the rule of law is the trust that the legal process will be carefully and fairly applied to everyone. Because those accused of crimes are presumed innocent, the burden of proof rests with the state. In drug-related cases, proving a defendant guilty of possession depends on proving the material is indeed an illegal substance. If the analysis of the material is flawed, the conviction rests on dubious evidence and thus lacks guaranteed due process. Such was the case in Massachusetts in 2012, when chemist Annie Dukin at the Hinton State Laboratory in Boston was found to be tampering with drug evidence and falsely certifying results she knew to be compromised. The result was a sentence of three to five years and Massachusetts dropping more than 21,000 criminal drug charges related to Dukin's work. A later investigation into the labs concluded that Ms. Dukin was the sole bad actor in the Hinton lab and there was no indication of other problems with other chemists or other labs. Until there was. Within a week of the release of the investigation, another lab employee in the state's Amherst drug lab, Sonia Farak, was caught using the very drugs she was testing for the state. A trial revealed that Ms. Farak was an avid cocaine, LSD, and crack user while working from 2004 until her arrest in 2013, putting in doubt the validity of her testing work and the convictions on which those tests relied. How deep is the problem in the state's drug labs? How could a decade of work from drug-addled chemists go unnoticed? And how did the state's own investigation discover the only bad actor was the one they had already caught and convicted? My guest today is Pioneer Institute's senior legal fellow and criminal defense attorney, Jim McKenna. Jim has represented defendants convicted with evidence from both the Amherst and the Hinton Lab in Jamaica Plains, and worked tirelessly to see those convictions vacated. Understanding that the problem affects perhaps tens or even hundreds of thousands of convictions, Jim has been dedicated to helping to reveal the breadth and depth of the problems at the drug labs and those tasked with their oversight. Jim will share with us how criminal drug cases are prosecuted, how drug evidence is used, and the implications for our criminal justice system if the integrity of its evidence is in doubt. When I return, I'll be joined by Pioneers Institute's legal fellow and defense attorney, Jim McKenna. Okay, we're back. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now joined by attorney Jim McKenna. Welcome to the show, Jim. Joe, thank you for having me here. And thank you for having a show like this that will examine issues in depth. It's not just a headline. It's more than that. Well, thank you for the kind words. Uh, let's start at the beginning with your background. You've been a criminal defense attorney for some time. Tell us a little bit about your experience in that in that realm. I've been doing primarily criminal defense since 2009. Before that, I was in civil defense litigation. And uh, before that, I was a prosecutor for a decade. So I've been in basically all sides of these questions. And as a, uh, uh, you've worked on both sides, the prosecution and the defense. Um, let's, we're gonna talk a lot about um, the burden of proof or evidence. Why, is the, why does the burden of proof rest with the state and, and why is that so important? It's critical because it's not a question about who can prove better case in court. It's a question about whether the government can prove the defendants are guilty. If they can't, 
they should, they, the defendant is not guilty, maintains the status of being not guilty. They're not guilty before the trial and only become guilty if the government proves beyond a reasonable doubt, the highest standard in law, that they're guilty. The government has far more power than an individual does, and the burden is left on the government for that reason. Now, in uh, we're going to be uh, talking primarily about drug-related cases uh, and the evidence that surrounds those kinds of cases. Uh, let's talk about due process. What is the burden of evidence in, in a drug prosecution? What, what does the, the state have to do to demonstrate guilt in that case? They must show that the defendant either distributed the drugs or possessed the drugs in a manner inconsistent with law. And that's with respect to the initial prosecution. With respect to post-conviction appeals or collateral attacks on that conviction, the burden shifts to the defendant. In terms of convicting, the burden's all on the government. In terms of showing that you weren't treated properly at trial, that is now the burden on the defendant. Remind us of what happened in 2013 with the Annie Dukin case. Annie Dukin was a chemist at the Boston lab, at the Hinton Drug Lab in Boston, in Jamaica Plain. And she was running amok. She would do something called dry labbing, where she would make up results without having conducted the tests. She also would do things like send samples to the mass spectrometer, which is the real analysis machine they have. And she would have guessed what the substance was, send it in. And if she was wrong, she'd contaminate it and send it back for a second view. There's a gentleman who went to prison jail for more than a year because he tried the case, didn't take a guilty plea, because he was, what he'd actually sold the undercover officer was a cashew. Dukin held that this was certified. This was crack. It wasn't crack. It was a cashew. He was convicted, spent time in jail, got out, sued, got a $2 million judgment, but he still spent time in jail. He will never collect a penny of that. And that's the type of thing that Dukin was doing. Eventually, she was caught. Joe, if, if you were to sit and run tests, drug tests on substances that were given to you to test, it takes some time. If you were to sit down and just make up results, you could produce a lot more results. Dukin produced the highest number of results in that lab from 2004 until it was shut down in 2012. So the first red flag for her or what made her a suspicious character was not that she was testing cashews, but rather she was producing so many results, uh, more results than other chemists in the same lab. Yes. Yes. On an annual basis. There was one chemist who she worked with who produced more results. Well, we'll talk about her in a moment. Yes. Um, well, now, what followed from uh, uh, her conviction, uh, which she was convicted of, of tampering with evidence and falsifying her testimony, um, what happened? And bring into this story uh, your own clients and your own experience um, uh, helping to defend people who were, in a sense, convicted on evidence Miss um, Dukin uh, falsified. She was caught in 2012. There have been issues that arose before then in 2011. Eventually, she was prosecuted by the Attorney General's office. That began in July of 2012. And she was arrested in September 2012. In October 2012, the defense bar, several members of the defense bar wrote to the governor and said, the Attorney General is investigating this. And the Attorney General's basically responsible for maintaining convictions. And those two things conflict. 
Because if you do a thorough investigation and determine that, in fact, there's a big problem, the convictions go away. So the natural inclination would be not to do the full investigation. That's why they wrote to the governor. And the governor thought this was legitimate and appointed the inspector general to do the investigation. I see. So there's a third party. We say, you know, it's generally a bad idea to ask people to investigate themselves or in a way that might harm their own uh, department. So we had the Office of the Inspector General. What did their investigation into the wrongdoing conclude? They conducted a reasonable investigation that went from the fall of 2012 until March of 2014. And they concluded, they analyzed things like training, funding, protocols that were used at the lab. And they concluded that Annie Dukin had been the sole bad actor at that lab. Now, if one of your listeners is driving down the road and not paying too much attention to what I just said, that could make some sense. Inspector General conducts an investigation, decides that Annie Dukin's a sole bad actor, unless you consider what he investigated. Training, protocols, management. You can invest, investigate all you want, all seven days a week, 365 days a year on the funding given to the lab. And that investigation cannot lead to the conclusion that Annie Dukin was a sole bad actor. The investigation was fine. The conclusion didn't fit, didn't match. So to put a finer point on what you're saying, uh, it was Annie Dukin as an actor. But of course, if it's a management uh, criticism, training, funding, uh, all the aspects of the entire lab, it seems unlikely that a poor, entirely flawed management system would produce only one bad actor. Is that what you're saying? Or if you investigate the, the flawed management system, that won't lead to the conclusion that only one chemist was running the mark. Well, well, another problem with the uh, finding is in, in less than a few weeks within the release of that finding and that investigation, uh, another lab tech was caught doing drugs or in fact using the drugs she was uh, analyzing. Uh, what uh, what was that case or what, what happened in that case? And uh, how did that shed light on the earlier investigation? On January 18, 2013, uh, a second chemist, one in Amherst, was caught having tampered with four separate evidence in four separate cases. And that was a Friday. On Saturday, she was arrested. On Sunday, the next day, the attorney general said that Nobody's civil rights were violated, that this was entirely different than the Dukin case. The remarkable thing about the timing on that is with, in less than 24 hours after the arrest, blanket statements were being made by the prosecution as to the nature of what that second chemist had done. The only thing anyone could be sure of at that point was that they couldn't be sure of what she had done. So in 24 hours, they were able to assess that the person they had arrested from a, a chemist from a drug lab uh, for drugs, using drugs that were found in the drug lab, uh, they reassured the public that uh, this is a very limited uh, a situation and nothing like Annie Dukin. Exactly. And there's no way they could have known whether that statement was true. It wasn't true. Um, now, the, that, the person we're talking about is uh, Sonia Farak. Um, she was uh, prosecuted for what they found, a drug use. It was found to be uh, that she was an avid drug user, meth, LSD, cocaine, crack. What happened to her and how does that uh, color our story? 
She was prosecuted for what they found on that first day, January 18, 2013. She'd been tampering with cases for years. There were, by the fall of 2013, another four or five cases identified in terms of what she tampered with. Any legitimate investigation at all could have identified hundreds of more cases. But the only cases for which she was prosecuted, the only tampering she was prosecuted for, was what was discovered on that first day. She went to jail for, I believe, 18 months or so um, in January of 2014, about a year after getting arrested. Now, when she was arrested, Ms. Dukin was not the most fastidious, uh, Ms. Farrick was not the most fastidious person in terms of keeping her car clean. There were notes in her car, diary notes, mental health diary notes from December of 2011, still in her car in January 2013. And Joseph, if, if they had not been in her car at that point, none of this would have happened. Now, um, I want to introduce the, the, the consequences of uh, these two uh, drug-abusing chemists and say that those cases that, the, that Annie Dukin touched in her uh, lab work um, uh, were called into question. And naturally, a similar uh, question would occur naturally uh, for Ms. Farrakh because, of course, she's also um, helping to support drug conviction cases. What happened, those cases related to Annie Dukin, and then what happened to the, the convictions based on Ms. Farrakh's work? Eventually, what they, the courts would decide was that all convictions in all Dukin cases, every case where she had reported testing results, would go away. The convictions basically were gone. Uh, there were some cases that the government could retry, but all the convictions were thrown out because, as the court put it, she engaged in misconduct that could not be replicated. It was beyond reconstruction. And you really couldn't tell what cases she tampered with the drugs in. If, if she tampered with one in every 30 samples, one in every 50 samples, or one in every two, you don't know which ones. So they thought the only thing to do is throw them all out. So all of Dukin's cases went away. Now, Dukin worked at the Boston lab, the Amherst, the uh, Hinton lab in Boston. And that meant that not everyone's cases until this week uh, were thrown out, but just her cases. I see. And, uh, and how, what is the, the uh, situation with Ms. Farrakh's uh, cases? W was it found to be that she was merely a drug user and that her, um, let's say, drug-addled performance had no impact on the work she was doing for the state? Until 2017, the Attorney General's office was making that argument. They were basically advocating on behalf of the proposition that the meth use at work had done little more than keep her awake, make her more alert and that the, there was no reason to think of her, her drug problem at work uh, having impaired the integrity of the evidence. Eventually, what the SJC in 2018 would say was, no, all the cases in which she reported testing results are gone, every one of them. And every case in Amherst from January 1, 2009 on, are every case by Ms. Farrick or her coworkers, those convictions are gone too. This is a, you know, it's hard for me to hear this. It's, 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 it's um, incredible to hear uh, that, um, you know, due process was uh, such a sham in, in the case of uh, these drug convictions. Uh, it was based on really poor 
performance, poor science, uh, poor management uh, of the state. Now, I, I have to ask the question that we had a um, office of the uh, inspector general looking into just exactly this case. We, they were looking after Annie Dukin was discovered for others like Annie Dukin to find wrongdoing. How is it that they didn't discover Miss Farrakh's wrongdoing in a, I understand the investigation cost the state $6.2 million. So uh, it was characterized as a top to bottom investigation of, of the labs. And yet they didn't find someone who was clearly, clearly an avid drug user. They didn't find that she committed misconduct because they didn't look for it. That was the essential problem. They investigated training, investigated management, but they didn't look as to whether any individual chemists had engaged in the same sort of misconduct that Dukin had. When in March 2014, we read the primary conclusion in the report, the press release said Dukin acted alone. The report said as conclusion number one, Dukin was a sole bad actor. We all presumed, all right, well, they've looked at what Farak did and determined she didn't do anything wrong in Hinton. They didn't look at what Farak did. And that didn't become apparent until 2015. But we all accepted that in 2014. We were all misled. Now, now uh, listeners may be saying, well, let's accept this, the state's uh, account of things and say merely because she's a drug user doesn't mean she's a bad chemist. Uh, that doesn't seem to pass a smell test, but there was more um, to it than that, really. You mentioned earlier that the red flag for Annie Dukin was her high uh, rate of testing. In other words, she's more productive despite her drug use than her fellow chemists. Um, what they also discovered was um, Ms. Farrak was also a record-setting uh, uh, chemist in her, in her output, uh, suggesting uh, dubious uh, techniques. Um, what can you say about that? In the time they worked together in Hinton, and if you watch the Netflix special on this, they never mentioned that Dukin and Farrakh worked together in the Boston lab because it wasn't in the Attorney General's report. They just never mentioned that. In the time they worked together, Farrakh and Dukin, Farrakh produced more, more results. She has the highest number of cocaine testing results ever reported at the Hinton lab. It's not Dugan, it's Farrakh. And that, you mentioned red flags, that should have been a huge red flag. But the inspector general's office, in what they characterized as a top-to-bottom review at the time, they would back away from that. They never actually looked at what individual chemists would do. In the fall of 2019, they actually would file a pleading which they said, well, you know, we never actually looked at individual chemists. And they didn't. And yet their conclusion as to Dukin being the sole bad actor suggested that they had. And we all accepted that suggestion. We're all misled. So uh, I think it's an old adage of imagine if, if you find one cockroach, you, you know, you find a cockroach, you find two cockroaches and you know, you've got a problem. Um, where are we now in that uh, we've got two bad actors. We've got an investigation that really doesn't seem like it's worth very much. It, it, it overlooked Ms. Farrakh. Um, what can you as an attorney, and again, you have an incentive to help your clients who may have been wrongly convicted on, on poor evidence. Uh, what, where are we now? You know, where there's two, there certainly must be more. What can you say about that? Between Dukin, Farrakh, and a third chemist at the Boston lab, the three of them produced 52% of the results in the time they worked together. 50, there were 10 other people reporting results. 
these three produced that many results. We have suggested for uh, different cases for years, suggesting that there should have been an investigation directed towards that third chemist. That was in, investigated eventually by the Suffolk DA's office. That led to the pleading that, that happened on Monday of this week. Uh, I think it was Monday this week, the 22nd. And the uh, findings by the Suffolk DA's office essentially were everything at Hinton during the time where Farrakh and Dukin worked there has to go. All the convictions based upon that evidence has to go because it's not reliable and justice is not served by having those convictions stay. It was a bold move and the right move. Bold move, indeed. How many people are we talking about? And I'm sure our listeners are thinking, okay, um, it sounds like bad actors, but are, how many people are, are we setting um, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of drug convictions uh, aside and letting uh, people go free? Help me understand the dimension and the scope of this, of the implications of this. The, to, to your questions, yes and no. We're <laughs> setting tens of thousands of convictions aside because that's the right thing to do. In terms of letting people out of prison, the lab closed in 2012. So the last of the testing, the last of the testing that is at issue here was done nine years ago. And the testing from 2003 was 18 years ago. So the vast majority of the tens of thousands of people, there are a few left perhaps in prison, but the vast majority have served their time in their home. So this is about what's right. It's not about letting people out of prison because most are already out. Almost all are already out. It's now just a question of, all right, these convictions were based upon evidence that was compromised. And the misconduct by the government involved both the prosecutors at, at issue and the chemists supports getting rid of these things, getting rid of these convictions, because it is the right thing to do. And the DA in, in Suffolk County stepped forward and did the right thing. So we're talking about Rachel Rollins in this case. Yes. The, um, now, you're, you've committed your um, professional life to uh, defending uh, people, uh, you know, hoping to keep uh, innocent people out of jail. Uh, and I, I suppose with these uh, these findings uh, and these convictions being overturned, or I guess uh, what's the legal term, set aside or or uh, vacated, yes, vacated, yes. yes. Um, people are already out, um, so we're not releasing people out into the street. My concern is: uh, Does your work end when you get your clients uh, released or their case vacated? Who's in charge of now holding the people uh, aside from Ms. Dukin and Farak? There are a lot of people involved here, a lot of wrongdoing or potential wrongdoing. Who's in charge of making sure uh, everybody at the labs, the supervisors, and those people who did the investigation into those, who's making sure they're held accountable for this uh, terrible travesty of of justice? The short answer is nobody is doing that. The Board of Bar Overseers has prosecuted three chemists from the Attorney General's office, three prosecutors from the Attorney General's office for what they allege to be misconduct. And that is underway. You, those results may be out in March or April 2021. Uh, they may be out later. But that's the only that's the only thing, the only official to step forward and, and prosecute was the Board of Bar Overseers. Besides that, 
there's been nothing done. There was no investigation of any chemist besides Dugan at Denton Lab. My guess is we'll never know whether anyone else was running amok. We just won't know. Hmm. Uh, I, I want to um, uh, quote from a letter you wrote. It was for um, which which letter uh, to to which uh, office did you write this letter? Uh, that was to the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. Department of Justice, Civil Rights Division. Uh, and it's the last paragraph that uh, stood out for me. Um, I want to just read it for our listeners. Demographically, a disproportionate number of the 5,000 people concerned are poor and members of minority communities. It would seem unlikely that if the majority of such people were white and suburban, the prosecutors involved would have completely failed to notify them of their unjust convictions. Justice should not correlate with privilege. Constitutional injury to those without privilege should not be considered acceptable collateral damage. I don't think I could say it any better. This gives me chills. That language was meant to get the United States Department of Justice Civil Rights Division to act. None of the people who neglected the rights of the defendants at issue cared, despite their rhetoric, didn't care about those who were being crushed by the fact that there was no investigation of Farrakh in Amherst, there was no investigation of anyone besides Dukin in Boston. The Attorney General's office hid the evidence found in Dukin's car for nearly two years. They almost got away with it. An attorney named Luke Ryan tracked it down and was able to get it from that office eventually because one of the people who was in charge had left and apparently apparently that was related to the fact that Luke eventually got that evidence. None of the people, none of the prosecutors at issue cared that this fell upon the minority community, the heaviest. You'll hear politicians speak all the time about the need to lift up those who are in minority communities. That's one thing to say, but when push came to shove here, nobody cared. So, so those of our listeners are still unmoved by uh, wrongful convictions of people who are perhaps uh, somewhat powerless. Miss um, uh, Farak, uh, actually, this wasn't her first uh, time at the rodeo. She was actually part of another lab uh, in an earlier career. She worked at the health lab uh, doing um, HIV testing, if I un- understand properly. Yes. That's, that's a part of this case, which is nobody's business to fix. Mm-hmm. So... Nope. Uh, I, I just want to um, sort of put a finer point on that. In other words, uh, she was uh, receiving um, uh, samples to, d- to test the presence of HIV or the, um, uh, the presence of HIV. And of course, she's uh, been a drug user since 2004. So uh, it's likely that those, uh, those results were compromised. So there were, it's reasonable to assume that some of the HIV uh, false uh, negatives went out into the world and people who were positive were misinformed until they were negative and um, carried on their life as if they were negative. Um, it's hard to wrap your brain around uh, the consequences of this oversight. It is. This came out during her September 2015 grand jury testimony. And what should have happened next would have been an effort to do a couple of different things. One, get those materials that Farrakh supposedly tested, the HIV materials, and retest them if possible, or identify who is at issue and notify them. The alarm should have been going off at that point. Uh, instead of that, 
what the prosecution did was file a motion to keep those grand jury minutes secret, to keep the transcript of what Farrakh said secret. The judge in 2016 would deny that, and so we're able to talk about what was said in grand jury. It's, it is, your point is well taken. Wrapping your mind around that is, is difficult. It's boggling to, to think that there are 20,000 tests conducted by someone who was using drugs at work, HIV tests. The drug tests are gone. They'll all be gone because they're not reliable. These are in the same boat. But wait, there's more. By August of 2019, the Department of Public Health, the same people who are testing the COVID, uh, running the COVID tests, couldn't determine which of the 100,000 HIV tests conducted while Farrakh was there were conducted by Farrakh. So where does that leave us? That means of the 100,000, 100,000 are suspect because you don't know which ones were conducted by this chemist. You do know that every one she conducted, every result she reported was unreliable. Whose job is it to fix that? Well, nobody's. Department of Public Health? Nope, they're not going to touch it. No, nobody cares about that. Hmm. So uh, we're getting close to our, the end of our time together. Uh, I was like, you know, we are a policy uh, think tank and a, a policy podcast. If, um, if you were king for a day uh, and you wanted to ensure that this doesn't happen again, in other words, no one goes to prison for a, uh, uh, for, with evidence that is um, uh, dubious, um, what would you change? And where, where are the uh, perverse incentives creating this, this uh, perfect storm of, of nonsense? You would change this system by having drugs tested by scientists at some sort of independent, independent institute. They're not being tested by the state police, which is not independent. There is also a question as to whether, given the massive failure here, and Joe, I don't think this has been... I don't think this result is similar to anything that's ever happened anywhere. The tens of thousands of convictions going away. Given the scale of this problem, I wonder whether this can be done, whether you can set up a system that will work. I do know that one thing I've run across in the eight years or however long it's been I've been working on this, that it's become apparent that uh, political corruption is not like in a James Bond movie. It doesn't involve a person acting in bad faith, living on, an, living on an island that's a volcano with a cat somewhere. No, that person is supremely capable and able to get things done. Political, political corruption is one part that, bad faith, two parts laziness, three parts corruption, three parts just ineptness and a hundred parts arrogance. The arrogance of those people who decided to hide the evidence, the arrogance of those who decided to stop the investigation of Farrakh in 2013, because they did, they stopped the investigation. They only restarted after we went to the SJC and the court said, of course you have to investigate. But the arrogance involved in saying, we're just not gonna look. We're out here in Springfield, we're in the far reaches of the state, we can get away with this. Well, frankly, if Luke Ryan hadn't tracked down the evidence, they would have. 
So before we end our show, I, I, I want to ask what, you know, what, what could, uh, I suspect the answer is not much, but what could our listeners do? Uh, can they write a, um, someone, the governor, uh, their legislator, uh, and, and, and uh, demand a change? Uh, and the other is, do you want to have a call out uh, for any uh, good actors, particularly uh, that have um, helped you in your work to uh, both undo uh, injustices or reveal truths uh, that might not otherwise come to light? Um, you want to shout out to anyone? Yes. First, in terms of what your listeners can do, be better citizens. Never go vote for someone just based on the signs you've seen. No who's doing what. If you think if the rhetoric is good, well, that's fine, but make sure their actions match and don't fall for them if they don't match. In terms of shout outs, Judge Michael Raschuti, Middlesex and Superior Court, Middlesex Superior Court judge, did painstaking work in the Eugene Sutton case and in April of last year said justice was not done because of the failure to investigate for Rock's work in Boston. You mentioned the 5,000 people who should have been notified about the convictions going away. That's based on the precedent the Judge Rashidi has said. No one has heard about that yet because uh, the 5,000 are not suburban white people. They're minority or they're not all suburban white people. And so there has been no interest in letting them know that their convictions could go away. But Judge Rashidi was great. Judge uh, District Attorney Rollins, in terms of taking that bold action this week and deciding that there's too much of a mess in Hinton. You can't have any convictions rest upon the impaired evidence there. And, and taking the bull by the horns and saying, this has to be done and dropping all the convictions. Again, not letting people out of prison because they're out. Just making things right about the convictions they had. And of course, letting them know what you're saying is the judge is insisting that those people whose good cases have been vacated get informed that uh, they've been uh, vacated, right? Yes, they have to know that they're entitled to new trials. And that's now underway. District Attorney Rollins is, is convening a summit next month in which they're going to figure out how to get that done. But it's now headed the right way. Well, let's let's uh, leave it there. I, I see an opportunity, perhaps in the future. Let's watch this space. We may have a, another future podcast to cover what happens next. I, I, I can't believe, uh, given the scope of this issue, that it isn't front page headlines uh, every day. But uh, we we shall see. So thank you. Uh, thank you very much for joining Hubwonk today, uh, Jim. You, you've been a great guest. Very kind, and thank you for making this show happen. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your favorite podcatcher. To help others find Hubwonk, it would be helpful for us if you would give us a five-star rating or a favorable review. And of course, if you share us with friends. If you have ideas for me, comments, or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.